Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, Ewan, is a battle plan synonymous with an orchestral composition? General Monash thought so. And Peter Fitzsimons is now playing the role of an enthusiastic percussionist as he captures the beat and rhythm of conflict in his account of the Battle of Le Hamel, entitled Monash's Masterpiece. So, Peter, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. I'm having a lovely time already. Excellent. And no, he's got his drum kit in with him as well. The extent, breadth and scope of this mm. composition, the battle plan of Le Hamel, mm. is extraordinary. I mean, there are the physical elements alone. Mm. By way of background to the battle, and I love the way, by the way, you're saying le chamel. It's just a little little there to do the <laughs> Like My wife only speaks one word of French, She says, but she says that word better than the French, and they love it. <laughs> they make her say it again and again. She says, merci, a little <laughs> on the R. But, but by way of background, so Monash was a Melbourne engineer, and not just a Melbourne engineer, the most brilliant of Melbourne engineers, and there are 80 bridges around Melbourne with Monash's name in the bottom right-hand corner. And he was not regular army, so when the war broke out, he was he was a general, but not the leading general. But he was so brilliant through the course of the war that by 1918, this revolutionary took idea took took hold among the political class. Given that we've got the Australian Corps and we're filled with Australians, what do you think maybe we should put? You know. An Australian in charge. And, you know, as in really instead of having an English officer. And and at the time, this was an extraordinary idea. And it'll amaze you, maybe you don't know this, but a 100 years later, there are still people who still think we can't have an Australian head of state. We must have a head of state from the English royal family. I mean, it's amazing, but there are people out there that believe that. We should have knighthoods as well. So they put Monash in charge. So when when you have an engineer in charge... Right away, Monash established, we're not having simply having waves of Australian soldiers charging out to their certain deaths. We're going to do this as a logistical exercise. And he, he was extraordinary the way he organised it. Well, the logistics is mind-boggling. Mm. I mean, 6,000 tonnes of gravel. When I read that, I'm thinking, hang on, we're in a battle zone. Gravel? Mm. What was going on? Exactly. I mean, the thing—the big thing for Monash was tanks, so that he didn't want that he didn't want it to be men, soldiers doing the heavy lifting up against machine guns. We've got tanks, and I know you don't trust them, but I'm going to teach you to trust them. Um, you know, we're going to have training days of the Australian soldiers with the tanks, get to know them, see what these things can do, get to know. We want you to billet with the tank commander, so you have trust among each other. We'll have we'll we'll daub them in. We'll give each tank a name, so you actually feel. No, no, really, no, they really. painted the really. Song. On the tank for the yeah. bank. What, what, what were some of the names? Oh, I can't remember. They, they named them after some of the... Yes. Um, yeah, but the idea was, and I mean, it was just extraordinary in its sophistication because he he made a battle plan of 90 minutes. And one of the things that most I loved most, we're going to have to... Well, to get how are we going to get the tanks forward? Well, we'll go at night. But they'll, they'll hear us. Ah, but at exactly 10pm, we'll have planes roaring in overhead just above the level of our ACAC fire. And under the roar of those engines, we'll move the tanks forward. What time will we do? it. 
We're going to do it at exactly 3.10am. Why then? Because we've done our research and at exactly 3.10am, the first luster of dawn will be in the eastern horizon. At that point, the German soldiers defending will be silhouetted, silhouetted against that dawn. We will be coming at them out of the blackness. And this kind of sophistication. So it's the, there's the physical organisation. So the gravel was to prepare the roads, not just for the tracks, but for the an- amount of um, vehicle traffic bringing in supplies. As Peter's saying, there's a psychological aspect as well in terms of billeting the tank drivers with the diggers, Mm. but also preparing the Germans. There's a fusillade at the same time every morning with a little bit of gas in it. It's like Pavlov's dog. So the idea is... We, they, they plan it for the 4th of July, which some thought was because it was the first battle of the Americans in that war, and it was under Australian command, under Monash's command. And for the two weeks prior to that, at exactly 3.02am, we're going to drop artillery on them, but mixed with gas canisters. We're going to train them like Pavlov's dogs to put on their heavy gas masks. So when the real battle comes, we'll drop the artillery, no gas but they'll put on their gas masks. So we're going to be coming, you know, the soldiers shooting us will be going through heavy goggles, difficulty breathing, hating everything. Yeah. Yeah. And they won't be able to see what they're shooting at. The timing, now this is a misnomer. The battle was orchestrated for 90 minutes. It lasted 93. But the timing, as has been coming out in this discussion so far, sort of the weeks before the preparation, but also then the weeks after Mm. in many ways, Mm. because you not only have to, gain the position, you have to hold it. Well, it's like that old line about sport, which is piss-poor preparation leads to piss-poor performance. I'm getting it, the six Ps. Proper, it's actually proper preparation is something-something performance, but the guts of it is the effort that Monash put in prior to the battle, it wasn't a rallying speech beforehand that did it. It was this ultra-sophisticated plan and putting everybody that was a player in the one room at the one time, working out how the plan would work and expecting innovation from everybody. I don't want you to give me your part of the plan because this is the way we do things. How can we do things better so that we don't lose lives? And he negotiated, Mm. which was basically a novel innovation in itself. Mm. And the other idea was that just as a spring that uncoils goes forward as far as it can and then comes back, Monash said, we're not simply going to go over the top and go till we can go no further which will mean we inevitably have to fall back. My estimation is that for the force we have, we can reasonably hope to crack their line and proceed exactly one and a half miles. You will see, gentlemen, on your maps that I'm giving you now, a blue line. And when you get to this blue line, which you will see between that tree and that dam, you will dig in. And that blue line was exactly, as I say, one and a half miles from the starting off point. And then he resupplied that line. Yes, and how did he resupply that line? It had never been done before. One of the, you know, the way it used to be would you'd have platoons of people, soldiers carrying and you'd lose, you know, across no man's land and machine gun fire and artillery and you'd lose five out of ten men. We're not going to do it like that. For the early part, we're going to have supply tanks, which one tank from memory could carry as much as 300 men, but then we're going to have planes coming in over, over the top, parachuting on the blue line. How will the planes be able to unload? Well, you're going to have to invent that, mate. Uh, Lawrence Wackett, you're the, you're the genius that can do this. Work out a way where the, where, the, where the pilots can come in, pull a lever and unleash the supplies onto how they're going to know. 
The soldiers that get there onto the blue line will have to put out white crosses with sheets so they have a target. So everything just changes. The communication, every detail mm. is looked after. But for all this, Monash was white-anted before mm. and not recognised after. Yes, well, I'm a, I'm a great admirer, generally, of Charles Bean. And he was, I'm a, I'm a journalist of the Sydney Morning Herald. He was a journalist of the Sydney Morning Herald. He was 50 times the reporter I will ever be. I read his stuff, his commitment to accuracy, his prodigious output, extraordinary. However, on the subject of Monash, Bean did not cover himself with glory. Bean, there was a certain anti-Semitism of the time, which Bean had as much, if not more, than most. And Bean, when the idea was put forward, it was General Haig himself who was the first one to mention to Bean, I think it was November of 1917, perhaps we should put make Monash the chief. Bean spoke out against it. Then when it happened anyway, he and Keith Murdoch, uh, who was another famous journalist of the time, particularly well-connected, combined to try to change Billy Hughes' mind to say the troops hate him, his fellow officers hate him, he's pushy, he's showy. I think the line from Bean was, like members of his race, he's always pushing himself forward. And General Rawlinson, who was the British general who commanded Monash, referred to him after, referred to another man and said, he's a creepy, crawly Jew, just like Monash. You know, that that was the kind of stuff. But but when, when they said so they got tried to get into Billy Billy Hughes's ear, say they all hate him, and then Billy Hughes arrived on the 3rd of July, the eve of the battle, and Billy Hughes spends the day going around the battlefield and afterwards pulls Bean and Murdoch aside and says, what the hell have you told me? That is not true. These generals, these officers love him. The men love him. It's not true. So, but nevertheless, when, and, and, and Monash wrote to his wife before the battle and said, I'm so tired of this distractions of this pogrom that's been launched against me. And yet, you know, he was playing, if, if Monash had not had a stunning success that he did, his position would have been in doubt. But it was a triumph too, not only for, for the logistical way of approaching a battle, but it was a triumph for putting an Australian in charge of Australians, of trusting ourselves. And I say this as chair of the Australian Republic movement, because every time in Australian history that they've put forward the idea of Australianness and running our own show, there has been a bitter backlash at each step forward. And Monash is a classic example. We put an Australian in charge instead of an English person in charge, and it was a triumph. And basically, Monash transformed the thinking. He wasn't of the right class. He wasn't of the right race. He wasn't nobility. Uh, he was an engineer, civilian, mm. etc. And yet he transformed the thinking about how to approach battle. Now, let's get on to an interesting question. Your approach mm -hmm. to writing mm -hmm. of history. I'm going to take you to task, sir, because... Um, I interviewed David Hill some time ago. He's a friend of mine. And David's approach was to do away with adjectives, do away with anything extraneous. You're adding these story elements in. Mm. What's the reason for doing that? It's very interesting. F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, who's the f perhaps the finest... Well, I, I always say Charles Dickens is number one for me. In terms of me feeling inadequate, I read Charles Dickens and I just slump. <laughs> uh, I read F. Scott Fitzgerald and I probably slump even a little further. But F. Scott Fitzgerald basically said, did away with exclamation marks, said it's like laughing with your own jokes, at your own jokes. And if you are a writer capable of evoking brilliant time, brilliant space and put the reader in the moment without adjectives, you're a better man than I am, Gunga because I can't do it. Okay, so if David Hill can do it, and he is a friend of mine, mm. good luck. But what I want to do with my stuff, and it's, it's sometimes criticised, sometimes it's bitterly criticised, watch my lips. <laughs> I 
don't care. <laughs> what I want, what I want is to put the reader in the moment. I work with three researchers, two of whom have got PhDs in history. I want to have, and the book I'm finishing now, Mon- um, Mutiny on the Bounty, has 1,950 footnotes going to original documents. I don't stuff around on this. I know what I'm doing. It's historical because you've got the primary sources. It's there in mm. Monash's masterpiece. Mm. I'm just wondering what the effect then is, apart from uh, putting the person in the moment, mm. what are the other advantages of storytelling? Because you set up something. So Monash meets Wackett, but then we're left to wait well, until we find uh, out what Wackett does. It's it's very interesting that you have picked up on that because when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, I used to read, and I don't know if you two might remember, because he was a great American writer, a potboiler writer. His name was Irving Wallace. I and I know. used to love his... Do you remember him? I, I do remember his name, but I can't say and, his books. And I used to love his stuff. And for some reason, at the age of 12 or 14, I would think, why is this stuff so absorbing? So you'd have jo- Johnny Bloggs is at home making a cup of tea. There's a knock on the door. He opens it up. There was a blonde, a beautiful blonde. Hello, Mr. Bloggs, she said. Next section. Over here, Jenny Jenny Johnson's... Da, 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 da. So you'd have four strands of the story, and you'd be saying to yourself, what's well, this? What, what 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 did the blonde say? Well, and so you'd have to read through, and so you'd suspend the per, the reader in the moment. They'd want to know what happened then, and then you'd come back to it. And it's a way of moving the story forward. In the book I'm done, just finishing on Mutiny on the Bounty, I got it up to three hundred twenty thousand words. It's now down to two hundred thirty-seven thousand words because it's not until I finished that I actually know. You know, I understand the entirety of the story. You understand what to cut back to reveal the guts of the great story in there. But also, we need ways of engaging the adolescents of today and and others with Australia's own history. I don't think we know enough of it, which Turnbull proved when he... It was extraordinary, that, wasn't it, with Malcolm Turnbull? I mean... Malcolm and I, I don't know if we can, I can say we're friends now, but we certainly used to be. <laughs> but, but, but I was amazed by that because when you're an Australian Prime Minister and you're making a speech for the ages, which that is, you know, 100 years in on... At Brisbane, the Monash Harris, Centre. At the Monash Centre. And you're making such a basic error of saying that, you know, Monash was instrumental in, you know, involved... In in, Britain, and yeah. Monash was involved in everything else, but he wasn't involved yeah, in Villas Brett. Yeah. You know, not, not particularly. He was, he was in that area. He did brilliantly well, but he, he was not, you know, he was not the one that saved Villas Brett. Yeah. Peter, we're going to have to conclude. I barely <laughs> cleared my throat. I'm not going. We've taken over the station. We're not leaving. This is Radio Free I Australia. I talking too, but I can't disappoint Vicky Petratus who's coming up. You've so got an interview. So, Peter, thank you very much. The book is Monash's Masterpiece. It's a hash release. So, Peter? Hachette. 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 Oh, got my pronunciation Come on, let's do a little bit of a... Hachette. And your interview, Ewan, is... Ah, this week, uh, Vicky Petratus. Vicky Petratus is an award-winning true crime author who has written more than a dozen books, including her bestseller about Frankston's serial killer, Paul Denyer. Vicky's latest book from Wild Dingo Press is about a legendary Melbourne police officer and detective, Brian Murphy, also known as The Skull. Her book is titled Once a Copper, The Life and Times of Brian the Skull Murphy. Welcome to Published or Not, Vicky Petratus. Thank you for having me. 
It's good to have you here. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Brian the Skull Murphy, how would you best introduce him? Well, he was known as Australia's toughest cop in his heyday, and he, you know, is said to have shot 40 people. He was charged with manslaughter. He got a Valor Award. So the, the gamut of who he was and what he did is huge. Could I ask you on that uh, stat, he shot 40 people, but did he kill any of them? He did not. He was. He says, he jokes that he wasn't a good shot, but <laughs> other people would describe him as being a very good shot. None of them died. Well, fair enough. Okay, so he he aimed for not the middle of the body, but limbs, presumably, and that sort of thing. To put that into a context, because this is in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, and he, you know, it was the shoot first, ask questions later. And there was a, um, a saying in the police force, better to be judged by 12 than carried out by six. So he always said if it was a choice between them and him, you know, it, it was going to be them. To give an idea uh, to listeners of just how dangerous it could be back there, going for a simple meal, one of the standout scenes in the book for me was he's going for a meal at a local pub in Port Melbourne. And that was one of the wonderful things about the book, the uh, social history that came along with your descriptions. And it was a pub I knew in Port Melbourne. And when he walked in with his wife and kids, there were two painters and dockers waiting for him. And he immediately suspected they were there to have a go at him. So he asked his wife and kids to go in. And what happened after that? Look, Brian always kept his wife incredibly sheltered and she's incredibly funny to to listen to her stories. Um, But, you know, so he'd always say, in you go, I've got to, you know, talk to a man. And they would go in and, you know, he confronted those two men, uh, you know, Quite possibly with threats to, I don't know, blow their heads off. Or well, in the book, he pulls a gun on them, just pulls out his gun and says, right. He was always frisk armed. It. Yeah. And, you know, and they were carrying. And yep. and I think that, you know, he always said, if anyone touches my family, I will kill four painters and dockers. Right. So, you know, they, they were in, that was the kind of language that they used. And so those men were left in no uncertain terms that to mess with Brian the Skull Murphy was not good for their health. Well, I wondered after he took the guns off each of the men who are waiting for him, what do you do with them when you're trying to sit down for a meal? Do you go and sort of put them under the table? Do you go and put them back in the car? Where do you put these guns? Look, Brian put them, I think think, um, from memory, because, you know, when you said that, when he took guns, and I'm thinking, which time was that? (laughs) Because it's about five (laughs) times that he does that. But um, he, I think in that he put them down a gutter in that case. But, uh, you know, he, he often hid them in Margaret, his wife's, you know, handbag. And there was one embarrassing moment at church where she her handbag fell to the side and this gun went scuttling across the floor. Um, so, yeah, there was often guns hidden in weird places. Uh, how embarrassing in church. Well, when you were writing the book, I'm fascinated at the process of researching it. How many hours of in- interviews did you do with Brian? I met with Brian, I wanted to call the book originally Saturdays with the Skull because (laughs) I met with him every Saturday for a couple of hours and he would talk, I would type and then the process of putting all, I'm very efficient as a a writer because when you work full time in a regular job that pays the bills, um, you have to, you know, I can't sort of take notes and transcribe and then write, I write as he talks. It's also a really good methodology to write because 
as he's talking, if he gets off track, my fingers are hovering over the keyboard waiting to write the next bit. So if he goes off and talks about somebody else that he shot or, you know, somebody else that he knew, I can say, so when you were in that dark room with that bad guy, what happened? So it kind of keeps both of us on track and it's it's just a really efficient way and then I would go home and I would do the googling and the looking at trove and looking at documentation so then you would support each of those stories with fact checking outside of his memory because there must have been a lot of things you had to corroborate through looking at newspapers and did you go as far as looking at court transcripts yeah he has all of that you know he had this massive uh, you know that spirit duplicated copies. You know that purple, oh, yes. those purple copies, yeah. and it was a huge um, stack of documents. So all of the inquest transcripts I had, oh. I had crime scene photos, I had the autopsy photos of um, Collingburn. Um, so I had lots of other material, and I had a lot of newspaper stuff that he'd kept over the years. Without giving away any spoilers, this is uh, what you're alluding to with Collingburn is a story that is central to your biography, Once a Copper, I'm talking with Vicky Petratus, that what he went through during this inquest is central to the book and is an extraordinary story. When I was reading it, I couldn't believe the compromises that were made from both sides. As an author, how did you work out who was telling the truth? I don't I think as an author you have to pick a side you know really you have to pick a side and um I had the autopsy photos and central to the Collingburn death so Collingburn Neil Collingburn was a painter and docker he was brought in to another squad not Brian's squad for questioning Brian happened to be walking past heard a commotion went in Collingburn had pushed over the police officer interviewing him and there was a scuffle and Brian intervened and walked off, didn't give it another thought, and uh, four days later, Collingburn died. And he was charged with manslaughter, as was the other officer. What was the supposed cause of Collingburn's death a day later? Well, the Collingburn, what happened to Collingburn was that he received a blow to the middle and he ruptured his duodenum and that started to leak and he was taken to hospital with stomach pains. Apparently, he um, assault. He um, spoke rudely to the nuns who don't At like that kind of yeah. thing. Fair enough. And uh, I think black crows was what he called them. And they pushed. They literally pushed his trolley over to a wall and left him there. And so he wasn't looked at for about a day. And by that time, it was too late. And gas gangrene had set in. And four days later, he died. So. I think it was a culmination of the two witnesses to that attack were two guys, Ian Carroll was one of them, who was later one of the great bookie robbers. Um, You know, they both said that Brian and the other police officer had beaten Collingburn and that was the cause of death. Mm. And so their stories were, you know, they smashed his head into a filing cabinet, they jumped up and down on him, um, they bashed him around the head, kicked him. But, you know, I had the autopsy photos in front of me and there was there's there's a literal boot mark in his middle and there's one cut above his eyebrow and nothing else. So, you know, you can have these statements in front of you, but if the evidence suggests that the police story was more likely, then, you know, that I'm happy to pick that side.
And But interestingly, though, sometimes the uh, police can actually turn on each other. And one of the other interesting stories in your book is about Paul Higgins, who is a good friend and fellow detective of Brian's. And I'm going to quote you uh, a couple of sentences towards the end of Once a Copper. Uh, Higgins trusted everyone. He could never believe coppers would go against coppers. Brian, on the other hand, had only ever trusted half a dozen cops in his whole career. Could you tell us a little about why Brian was so untrusting of so many of his fellow police officers? Brian was a different breed of cop in the days where he started. So he was a non-drinker and that immediately set him apart right from the start from a lot of the hard-drinking cops. He was a family man. He gave all of his wages to his wife who, you know, managed their money very well. He was criticised, other other cops who drank theirs and had girlfriends on the side. Um, so Brian was always on the outer, but, but at his core was a, a burning honesty that was more important to him than anything. And so right from the start, he saw corruption within the ranks. And there's some wonderful stories about how they tried to set him up. They blew up his car. So he would do things like... Um, there was a, a, an investigation into SP bookmakers and no arrests had been made in about 14 months. So the head of the police station at the time got Brian onto it and Brian had his own uh, interesting way of clearing the alleyways of illegal bookies. But, of course, they were paying police officers for protection. And so automatically that sets him up against or sets colleagues up against him, hence the blown-up car but every time they tried to target him, I think Brian came out stronger. And, you know, I said to him one day, I said, because he was still living at home, and I said, what, what did your mum say? Because this literally came to your front door. Yeah. And he said, if I ever had have suggested to mum that I should back off because it could be harmful to the family, he said, you know, she would have cuffed me over the back of the ear and just go, go harder, bastards. <laughs> you know, that's that's what her attitude would have been. So... The more people went up against him, the tougher he got. In a time now where violent arrests, we've seen a number over TV in Victoria and interstate as well on CCTV. And earlier this year, we had a very senior figure in Victoria Police resign over allegations concerning racists and obscene internet posts. During the time you spent with Brian Murphy, did he have any enduring advice on how to keep police honest and worthy of the public's trust? Look, Brian has a very a fairy tale view of justice, I think, because, you know, I said to him he was describing how the motto for domestic violence when he was a young copper, you know, his senior officer said to him when they went to their first one, he goes, our motto is never get called back twice. You go in there, you drag the bloke out, you give him what he gave the wife and kids with a bit on top, you yep. lock him up for the night, you give the station phone number to the wife and say, if he touches you again, we'll be back. Yeah. And he sort of looked at me and, and it was poignant in a way. He looked at me and he said, I don't know why they don't do that today. Yeah. And for a second, you think, yeah, I, that, they should. And then I think of all of my friends who are police officers, like, you know, the female police officers, and, and I can't imagine them yeah. dragging a violent, I don't know, wife beater out to the front garden and giving him a biffing. Yeah. So in the context of what he sees, his his version of justice and morality is very black and white and it's very immediate. And look, and it's endearing. The stories were great and I think that old-fashioned side is why people really have taken to the book so well. But at the same time, does it work? You know, I don't know. 
But look, the the book Once a Copper, I'm talking with Vicky Petratus. And just finally, Vicky, I believe when you launched the book, the venue, the Avenue Bookstore in Albert Park, was, it wasn't big enough. Where did you have to hold the launch? Look, I think the Avenue were expecting about 40 people. And on the first day of bookings, they got 140 people. Whoa. And they rang me and said, look, we can't hold that many. We can either take it across to the hall, the school hall across the road. That holds about 250. And they said, but we won't be able to serve wine. And I said, I don't drink. Brian is legendary and legendary (laughs) non-drinker. We don't really care about the wine. So they ended up moving it across the road and stopped bookings at 250 people. But people are still so interested. The guy's 85, you know, and people are still so fascinated by what he did and what he represented. Well, I think a lot more people will be finding out about Brian the Skull Murphy. And I've been talking with Vicky Petratus, the author of Once a Copper, The Life and Times of Brian the Skull Murphy. It's published by Wild Dingo Press, currently in all good bookstores. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Vicky Petratus. Thanks for having me.